1: Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Alan Rusperger, editor of Prospect, and today, I'm delighted to be joined by Observer writer Sonia Soda and Times political columnist Rachel Sylvester to discuss the aftermath of an eventful reparty uh, conference. Now, Sonia, I, I believe you used the, the thin excuse of the threatened RMT strike <laughs> not to go, but Rachel, you've hot-footed it back from the conference, so maybe we'll begin with, with Rachel. How was it for you, Rachel?
1: Well, I I think the, the conversation that summed it up best was I spoke to one Tory MP who said it feels like we're on the Titanic with no lifeboats. And there was just this sense of utter doom and gloom among the few Conservative MPs who had bothered to turn up. So open warfare among the cabinet is just absolutely in despair about their chances of winning the next general election. And of course, what had happened was Liz Truss had sacrificed in their minds... The party's reputation for economic competence the week before with the mini budget and those extraordinary graphs of the pound and gilts and the sort of disastrous impact on the economy and people's mortgages. And then she lost all her political authority and the MPs had made absolutely clear that it was possible for them to force her hand. They forced her into this U-turn on the 45p top rate of tax. But meanwhile, founding at the same time the kind of brand retoxification for the Tory party, because even though she did do the U-turn, which a lot of MPs were very pleased about, the damage had in a way been done because everybody knew that her priority was to cut taxes for the very wealthiest in society at the same time as refusing to guarantee that benefits would rise in line with inflation. So there was just this sense of it being an utter car crash.
2: That was—I mean, I, I was only there for a day yesterday, but that, that—that was also my sense. Sonia, you—you—you you, you weren't there, but, I, but but I imagine you were watching the speech this morning. Sonia, you weren't there, but in a way, you bring a valuable external perspective, and I'm sure you were watching the speech this morning. Who—who who did you feel she was speaking to? Was was she? Was this her first speech to the nation as a whole, as prime minister, or was she really uh, addressing the room?
0: For me, I think she was very much addressing the room. The big questions, I mean, normally when you're a prime minister, your first conference speech as prime minister, you would expecting it to be sort of setting out for the nation what you're trying to do. But unusually for somebody who's only kind of four weeks into the job, I think Liz Truss faced all sorts of questions from her own party. And I think that, as Rachel has just said, there are a lot of MPs who are very angry, actually, about the way that some of the announcements around the mini budget have been uh, mishandled. So... To be honest, there wasn't a huge amount that was new in the speech. It is very much what she's been saying for the past kind of, you know, week and a half. But I did really feel like it was trying to reassure her and particularly her MPs, amongst whom there is talk about, you know, can she make it until Christmas that she is here to stay? Whether it actually achieved that is a completely different question. And I'm really not sure that it did.
2: Well, I know you left last night. Rachel, but what's your sense about how that speech will have played in the party? And you've mentioned all the the jitters and the depression of of Tory MPs. Do you think they will have been reassured at all by the tone of the speech?
1: It wasn't a disaster, but I really didn't think there was anything in it that would cut through to ordinary voters. I think Sonia is right. It was very much aimed at the room. But actually, it was in some ways she talked about this kind of anti-growth Coalition in which she lumped in everybody traditional Tories don't like Labour, Lib Dems, environmentalists, um,
2: people who live in North London, people who
1: live in North London, people who go into do interviews at the BBC. But she didn't highlight the perhaps members of the anti-growth coalition and the Tory benches, people who are opposed to planning or perhaps fracking. So there's a there's a kind of um, there was a slight fantasy element to it. And I also thought it was a sort of it was a false dividing line because Keir Starmer spent his whole speech talking about the importance of growth. And the issue really isn't whether you're in favour of growth or anti-growth. It's how you get the growth. So Keir Starmer's view is it's through creating, investing in the green economy. I would say it should be through education reform and making sure that children come out of school prepared for the jobs of the future. But Liz Truss has this view that the it's only the only way to growth is tax cuts, and tax cuts for the rich, and deregulation. That isn't the only way to growth, and that's the real dividing line in politics, I think.
2: What, what do you make of the obsession with growth, Sonia? I mean, there are those who think that she has, in a way, built her career on creating wedge issues and, and creating an enemy, and you have to choose which side you're going to be on. But I agree with Rachel that it's a slightly odd group of people, if if indeed there is such a group, to invent or pick on.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think Rachel was sort of spot on. And I think this idea that... So so I think what she's doing is looking at what worked with Brexit and some of the very populist rhetoric around Brexit and, you know, the elite who, um, you know, love the EU and they don't want you to take back control. And she's trying to apply that to a sort of post-Brexit age. And when I say post-Brexit, I mean that Brexit just isn't politically salient in the way that it was. It's not the dividing line that it used to be even two years ago when Boris Johnson won the election in 2019. And so she's trying to create some of... Of that sort of same them v us rhetoric. These people in North London who give interviews in BBC Studios, as as Rachel just said. But I just don't think that chimes with people. And it particularly, I mean, people aren't really gonna know what she's on about. And they're particularly not gonna know what she's on about at a time when they're facing huge, huge challenges. Let's not forget that even though the Government is is freezing energy bills at an average of two thousand five hundred pounds a year. They're still going up by quite a lot. There's massive uncertainty now about working age benefits and tax credits and whether they're going to effectively be cut next April in real terms by probably around ten percent if they're not uprated with inflation. People don't care about you know this rhetoric about people going to from North London going into BBC Studios. So I think she's really really mispicked mispitched it and the whole wrapper that it comes in around growth you can't just hammer home a point around growth without relating it to what exactly you're going to do to promote growth and the fact of the matter is even though she's u-turned the thing that people are going to know the conservatives for is for very expensive tax cuts including a tax cut that before they u-turned would have delivered a forty thousand pounds a year benefit to people who earn a million pounds a year how is that pro-growth? That to me feels like the dividing line that's, that's shaping up, actually. And I think that, you know, it, she's artificially trying to create a divide that isn't there, that won't resonate with real people.
2: On 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 the, the broader plan, there was a suggestion that, that that was going to be brought forward. But that looks as though uh, it's not going to be brought forward. I, it's not quite a U-turn. I don't know if that's a, an S-turn or a... W turn or a Z turn, but but I think anyway,
1: or an O turn. You, you end up in this It might be that they they haven't yet announced it to Parliament, so they are actually going to bring it forward, but they haven't said so yet. So oh, it
2: may I be see. a okay. sort of. At, but but W turn. So, I don't um, know what kind
0: of turn that is. <laughs> a J turn. A
2: J turn. So we might see that before November the twenty third. I think was the target date. Do you think that's too late, Rachel? Do you think people have now made their minds up and? the handling of this statement, whatever one thinks of the statement itself, has been so cack-handed that, it's, that, that people's minds are now made up.
1: Yeah, I think those graphs are really going to be seared in people's memories because it was about their own personal finances. And people ended that week feeling really anxious about were they going to lose their home? Were they not going to be able to buy a home? What was going to happen to their benefits is another question now. And all those anxieties, I think, of, that cuts through in a very deep and personal way, in a way that kind of theoretical talk about growth just doesn't. So I think there, it was one of those moments that had real cut through with the voters. It looked shambolic as well. And the U-turn just compounded that sense of shambles. And normally the party that is ahead on leadership and economic competence wins the election And certainly in that week, Liz Truss lost both those things to a really dramatic extent. And it's quite hard to see how she regains them, even if she produces a sort of absolutely foolproof economic plan. And of course, then the bigger question is, does she get, do they get this 2.5% growth that they're promising within two years? Which I think even her most avid supporters would say is quite a tall order so when it comes to an election are people going to feel the country's going in the right de- direction are they personally going to feel wealthier or poorer and i think that you know there's a danger that even if there is some growth it's going to be wiped out by the problems that have emerged as well and the the cost of living crisis
2: sonia did we get a sense of a party that was effectively beginning to break up that, that there have been many strains and stresses on this party over the last i mean certainly last six years but maybe longer and it was pitched in terms of party discipline we had mm-hmm. michael gove being uh, mischievous um uh, we had pretty patel from the sidelines even penny mordant uh, nadine doris who was a supporter of liz trust now suggesting that there should be a- an election is that going to be one of the big problems that, that Liz Trust is going to have over the over the next coming months? Just keeping people together
0: party discipline is absolutely going to be a massive problem for her. I wouldn't say though that the Conservatives are a party on uh, the cusp of breaking up. I think we were all talking about Labour potentially in that frame, you know, maybe five years ago. And I think our electoral system uh, acts to keep even extremely unhappy parties, very, very uneasy bedfellows together. But what I think you are going to see is a party that lacks discipline, which makes governing very, very difficult. I think these... MPs on the backbenches They don't owe Liz Truss loyalty in the same way that some of them felt they owed Boris Johnson. She's never won a general election for them. In fact, many of them are incredibly worried for the reasons that Rachel's just set out that actually Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng's agenda is going to lose them their seats. And they have just managed to secure a very big high profile U-turn on the 45p tax rate. So rebels feel emboldened. And this week has gone badly. You know, you've got Suella Braverman sort of Really angering the Tory backbenchers, the Home Secretary, by accusing backbenchers of launching a coup. That has gone down extremely badly. You've got very poor cabinet discipline. You've got Penny Mordant, who is uh, leader of the House, saying that benefits absolutely must keep pace with inflation and should be put up with inflation next April, which is something that Truss and Kuoteng have refused to commit themselves to. So this is already a party that has no discipline. So I don't think it's going to implode altogether, but I I think it is going to be extremely difficult for Trust to get anything done. And I think it has the hallmarks of a party in terminal de- decline for whom you know, an election is never in the bag. And, and Labour absolutely should not be arrogant or complacent about that. But the Conservative Party currently has the hallmarks of a party that is about to spend some time in opposition.
2: What's well, the that's sense you got, Rachel?
0: Well, also... Even if the party itself doesn't split, I think that coalition
1: that Boris Johnson cobbled together in 2019 is now looking very fragile. And Liz Truss talks about she doesn't mind being unpopular. She wants to she's happy to press ahead with unpopular decisions. But politics is at least to some extent about popularity. And she seems to be almost making a virtue of creating enemies Whether that's the Treasury with the orthodoxy, remainers, benefit claimants, pensioners now are not that happy because of their pensions going down. Instead of trying to build a coalition, she seems to be trying to section off the electorate. And I think that coalition between the Red Wall voters and the sort of shire Tory Blue Wall voters that Boris Johnson brought together through Brexit, it's hard to see that staying together at the next election because Liz Truss is going only for one very narrow bit of the Tory party, never mind the electorate.
2: Just just unpacking this, uh, this obsession with growth, which is the, the one big word that, that will be hung around her neck, as it were. I mean, there are, there are people who think it's just simply unachievable, that the, that the era of high growth has gone, and they simply don't believe that 2.5% is realistic. And there are some people who think it's undesirable, the context of climate change. We, we have to rethink the way we think about growth and the the, the way that economies are run. So Sonia, is that that going to be one of the dividing lines in in politics?
0: Not in mainstream politics, I think, in the sense that I think no politician is sort of going to adopt a growth ambiguous position, apart from, you know, obviously we've got the Green Party, who I think if not formally, are certainly very attached to the idea of, of, of zero growth. So I think you're always going to get politicians from Labour and the Conservatives being pro-growth. I think the really key thing is, is how do you achieve the sort of growth that we were seeing pre-financial crisis? And you know, there are a number of very long-term structural issues in the British economy that meant our productivity growth fell off a cliff after 2008 that was to do with the fact that so much of it was driven by the city and by the financial sector um which kind of suffered as a result of of the financial crisis and George Osborne, before he became Chancellor in 2010, in 2008, 2009, he was giving speeches saying, you know, he was going to be a a march of the makers' chancellors and was going to rebalance the British economy away from our addiction to consumer-led spending that's fuelled by housing price bubbles, rising house prices, and rebalance us towards more export and business investment-led growth. The problem is, is that not only has that not happened, we've kind of slid backwards, and Brexit has been a big part of that. So the very worst thing you can do if you're interested in a growth agenda that's driven by business investment and exports is to erect huge barriers with our closest trading bloc, which is exactly what the Conservatives have pursued through the hardest of Brexits, for which there was no democratic mandate. You know, there was a a mandate arguably for Brexit, some sort of Brexit, but not for a very hard Brexit that had a huge impact on British exports. So um, I I think, I personally don't think Um, pre-2008 growth is unachievable, but it requires a very sustained and long-term focus on improving productivity in the British economy, which has to include stuff like um, better investment in skills, better investment in infrastructure, and sort of much smarter intersection between um, public and private investment. And, you know, no one seems to be really thinking about that, certainly not in the Conservative Party. And if anything, policies of Conservative governments over the last kind of 12 years, whether it's Green investment, whether it's Brexit and its impact on exports, have really, really made achieving growth much, much harder. So, um, so I don't think it's unattainable, but I just don't think the policy will. Is there from the Conservative Party? So I, I cannot see the Conservatives achieving the sort of growth targets that Kwateng is talking about.
2: It's, it's sticking with you, with you for a moment, Sonia, the so you say the the Greens and their view of growth is a is at the moment a, a marginal position. There, there is a sense in which, and, and I suppose the, the Greenpeace interruption of of mm. speech was one sign of it. But but there are people like the membership of the RSPB and and other green organisations who are beginning to feel quite fearful about the implications of this drive for growth. That that's quite a powerful bunch of people to alienate, isn't it?
0: Well, it is when you're trying to appear as though you're sort of, you know, a party who takes commitments to the climate crisis and achieving net zero seriously. And it's not like this is as key a part of Liz Truss's agenda as say it was for David Cameron, but it is still something that she wants to sound committed to and talked about in her speech. For me, I think the really interesting divide when it comes to the climate crisis is people who sort of think well actually we don't need to sacrifice growth we can have growth and we can become greener by investing massively in clean energy in green technology and actually growing our economy through becoming a specialist in that and then the sort of more hardline radical green position which is actually no you can't have your cake and eat it you do need zero growth because basically there's you can't have it all and and that to me is quite an interesting divide albeit a divide on the left rather than than the right of politics. But I think when it comes to the rhetoric about this compared to the policies, there's there's just no question that the sort of rather meagre green policies of the Conservative Party, especially when you look at the slide backwards on renewables, for example, other things over the last sort of 12 years, it, it just doesn't meet the rhetoric.
2: Rachel, your MP... Um and his his her analogy of the titanic i mean apart from the people who are actually on the government payroll perhaps even some of those is there no way out i mean a, a catastrophe scenario is that somehow they change the rules of the 1922 committee and then they send for rishi and it's ghastly and embarrassing but at least it gives them some hope is is it is that totally far-fetched or can you imagine that happening
1: not totally impossible but I think it's quite unlikely because the the MPs at least feel they would look ridiculous to change leader again and it would be quite hard to change leader without a general election for another a second time so they feel that at the moment the momentum isn't there for that I mean that might change if if the polls continue at this level but even so I think there isn't very long to go and I think for them to change again really would it would look silly. The problem is as well, is that they. what another MP said to me, former Cabinet Minister, that it's this is just most of his observations were completely unprintable or unbroadcastable. <laughs> but the point argument he made was that this is just proven to destruction the idea that party members should be able to choose the leader. He pointed out, you know, IDS, Corbyn, and Truss were effectively foisted on their MPs by the party activists who are more ideological because they don't have to win an election and I think there is something interesting in that that we've ended up with a very ideological leader and that several people made that comparison to me between Liz Truss and Jeremy Corbyn that the conservatives have now gone down a kind of very ideological route um, taking this kind of free market libertarian ideology off the shelves uh, as it were Um, and it's just not worked it's not kind of survived um, impact with the with the actual markets with the real world but there's that mixture of incompetence and ideology which a lot of the MPs feel is really toxic and they want to try and avoid again in future and they fear that giving the party members who are increasingly narrow bunch the choice over the leader is actually a disaster
2: electorally in the end, Sonia. Yeah, if we were bending over backwards to be fair, was there anything that that the Tories could feel comforted by at the end of these two weeks? If you take Labour and t- 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 the Tories together, I mean, it is there some sense that they've weathered the immediate financial storm. The markets have settled a bit. The pound has bound back, bounced back a bit, and that they've they've won themselves a, a breathing space. It's a low bar, but but. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's- can, can we can we portray anything in a positive light for the Conservatives? Um,
0: I mean, I guess the letters didn't fall down behind Liz Truss as she gave yes. her speech. She wasn't <laughs> presented a with a P45. It's a very low bar. I mean, no, that's that's I mean. I guess one thing that the Conservatives have got working in their favour is that, I mean, I really don't think Labour can be complacent. I think that's very dangerous. And Keir Starmer, I think he did very well, actually, at the Labour conference. And I think the Labour Party will feel that that went well. And, you know, it's hard to identify what what could have gone loads, loads better for Labour. But when it comes down to it, Labour do not have at the helm an inspiring orator that is not Kishida. Starmer. I personally think actually Kishida would be a very good prime minister when in office, but he does not have the skills that some of his predecessors, like, for example, Tony Blair, have had in kind of instinctively getting the public, having a feel for the public. And so that, you know, things could be even worse for the Conservative Party. I think if they had somebody who had Blair's skills in 94 96 um you know uh, for a different age at the helm of the Labour Party now it would be looking even grimmer for them but they don't uh so yeah that that would be the, the one silver lining I might be able to find for the Conservatives what was so interesting I think as
1: journalists we go to all these conferences and there was just such a stark contrast between mm. Labour and the Conservatives Labour for the first time for decades actually looked like a government in waiting and like it was ready for power and wanted power and it had put aside that idea that the purity of opposition is better than the compromises required for power and Keir Starmer overtly and deliberately walked onto the centre ground. He described his party as the party of the centre ground. He quoted Blair about being the political wing of the British people whereas the Conservatives just marched straight off the centre ground, looked shambolic, chaotic, I mean, slightly mad. And it was just that contrast that was so striking when you went to both. The Labour disciplined, lots of people in suits, you know, all the kind of more um, fringe elements gone. Um, tories, fringe are now in charge, you know, the ideologues are running the show. And it was just a complete reversal from previous conferences.
2: So, Sonia, if it's not enough for Keir just to sit back and wait, what would you be hoping to see from from Labour over the next few months while the Tories wallow in their difficulties?
0: Yeah, well, so, I mean, I, and the fact of the matter is it, it may be enough for someone to sit back and wait. That's how bad the Conservatives are. But... Um, if Labour wants to maximise, it's certainly not in the bag, and if Labour wants to maximise the size of majority that it gets at the next election if it if it goes on to win, then I do think it needs to do um, a, a couple of things. So um, one is that I think that w- one of the things that's still a bit missing for me is... Um, you know the the Keir vision uh, for britain like the kind of prime minister that he'll be i sort of feel like his he's still struggling to articulate that a little bit and related to that i think is um one of the things I noticed is that um, a lot of the um, sort of pledges that are being talked, were talked about last week, were kind of framed very much in like big numbers. So, um, you know, we're going to use the savings from not doing this tax cut to fund X number of new doctors and nurses. We're going to build, you know, 400,000 um, more social homes after over a certain amount of time. Um you know big numbers don't mean a lot to people they need them translated into what what that means for their lives you know like this means that your kid won't be in a you know to to go back to 97 pledge card this means your child won't be in a class size of over x this means that you won't have to wait longer than x to um you know get your urgent cancer referral for example um one pledge that i did think did that though was the um childcare pledge so free bet breakfast clubs for all primary school all primary school age children which I think was actually kind of quite brilliant and does communicate to people you know exactly what Labour stands for so I think there needs to be a bit more of that if if you ask me but I, I really do think that the way the Conservatives are going uh, they're opening up such a massive political opportunity for Labour. I agree
1: with Sonia about needing more of a sense of what the country would be like and how it would be better at the end of the five-year Labour government. How would the schools be better? How would they be different? How would the hospitals be better? How would they be different? I think Sonia's right, that Breakfast Club announcement and the focus on childcare was something that could be incredibly popular. And I think Labour will and should build on that sort of territory and that space as the Conservatives are going off down a blind alley of grammar schools and interviews for Oxbridge for anyone who gets 3A stars, if they can build a compelling vision of a sort of education system that prepares children for this world of AI and green jobs and a whole different way of thinking, whole new kind of skills that we need, and using technology and using liberating teachers from the sort of iron fist of Ofsted, things like that, that would actually give a sense to people that the country is going to be better, life is going to be better, an optimistic vision. And I thought it was very interesting in his speech, Keir Starmer talked out against that kind of declinist rhetoric. He he didn't use the word patriotism, but he tried to give a patriotic view of the country being better. He just needs to explain how and why it would be if he becomes Prime Minister.
2: Well, thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Sonia, I, by the way, are you in North London as you speak?
0: No, I'm not. I'm not a North Londoner. I'm a South Londoner. By thank you an, an-, an anxious
2: moment. Otherwise, so I, we,
0: I passed the list trust test. We feel <laughs> I can say proudly, proudly, um, yeah
2: owned up to our, our buyers so anyway it's south south londoners sonia and and rachel for, for joining us thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion if you enjoyed this podcast you can escape the echo chamber by grabbing a copy of the latest issue of prospect out this week or you can go to magazine or one word, co uk to subscribe in this issue you will find a gorgeous cat on the front cover i was accused of being so desperate apparently this is a recognized subscription boosting technique to put cats and dogs on the front cover but actually this this is uh, fat cats a very good piece by uh, former financial times and guardian journalist deborah hargreaves about the explosion in executive pay and we've got sharon white john lewis and, and and many more fascinating features Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.